HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece has been brought to you by Bonnie Plants, bonnieplants.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, I'm Kathy Array, the host of Eat Your Words and Heritage Radio Network. This summer, I'm taking a little break and having co-host Talia Ralph and Brianna Kurtz host several episodes. I'll see you back in the fall. everyone and welcome to Eat Your Words. I'm your host today, Brianna Kurtz, and I'm here with my fellow show, fellow show host, Patrick Martins of The Main Course. Patrick's here today to talk about his new book, The Carnivore's Manifesto, and we will be joined by his co-author, Mike Edison, later on in the show. Patrick is also the founder of Heritage Radio Network, as well as Heritage Foods USA and Slow Food USA, which we're definitely going to chat about. Hey, Patrick. Hey, thanks for having me. So, the, like the book starts out, can we, let's take a little journey into the past and kind of bring our listeners up to speed on how you came to establishing all those entities I just listed and how that experience informed this book kind of coming into being. Mm-hmm. The short version. Yeah, no, the short version for sure. <laughs> well, um, you know, I, I guess I've always been uh, uh, slow is how you should eat, but it's not how you change the world. Sometimes you have to be a little fast with how you do things and act a little entrepreneurishly. And so, you know, I've always had that kind of New York City, I want immediate results. Uh, You know, I want to see slow food grow. And then when all these farmers were like, we need help selling our stuff, I was like, I want to get 100 restaurants to buy your stuff right away. You shouldn't have to, you know, kill off your rare breed herds because there's no money in it anymore. That's crazy. And then with the radio, too, I mean, I made a handshake agreement here at Roberta's with Chris and Brandon, and uh, they were like, you can uh, drop two shipping containers, and I wanted to be broadcasting within a day. Obviously, it took six, seven months to build this thing, but, um, you know, and likewise with the book, um, I felt that there needed to be some type of archive for all these funny experiences I've had, all these great foods I've tasted, and all these interesting things I've been lucky enough to do with other people. You know, it needed a a spot, and so uh, we wrote The Carnivore's Manifesto, me and Mike. Uh, I had thought about writing a book for a long time, but I'm not that great a writer. I don't decorate the ideas with, like, fun, rhymey words. I don't know how to use alliteration. So uh, I don't even know what that is. So I needed someone like Mike, who's a professional writer, and I came to have great respect for what a co-writer does because essentially they are in the business of being you. 
you know, some do it better than others, but that's a real talent to be able to have such a command of the English language that they can be you, they can be Joan Dagasau, they can be, you know, Anthony Bourdain, they can be Joe Bastianich, Mario Batali, and they, uh, that's how good they are. So um, his wordsmithery and the experiences of, uh, I've had made it, uh, you know, a fun book to, to write and hopefully to read. Let's touch on some of those details about the book kind of coming together. I mean, it's really funny. It talks about serious issues, but it doesn't really take itself too seriously. Yeah, what did you think of the book? I I loved it, but I, I, I'm a little biased. Um, but I really like the essay format. Uh, I think it makes it for quick reading, easy reading. Um, have any of the essays been published elsewhere no. previously? No. Just one. I wrote an op-ed piece for the Times in 2002 about turkeys, and that's pretty much, with a couple changes, the exact same op-ed piece. And about, like, how? what's the time range of the essays from starting in 2012, 2013? You mean, uh, when did we uh, start writing? Mm -hmm. We started, actually, in uh, November, December of 2012. Mm -hmm. And uh, then all of 2013 was very busy, and he, Mike would come over to my house, uh, or I would go over to his house, and that was yeah, a summer, really, where we were writing a lot. And it's very stressful to write a book. I mean, it's, it's an honor, and it's nice to get you know a check in the mail for having written something, but you wake up first thing in the morning on a Monday, on a Saturday, on Christmas. In the middle of the night. In the middle of the <laughs> night, you're like, I should be writing. Do I have enough energy? Should I go and knock down some ideas? Because it was 50 essays, and it's very hard to know when all 50 will be finished, so you constantly have this pressure early on to just as fast as possible so that you don't miss the deadline because it would have been embarrassing if it was only like 47 or something. Oh, yes. Um, you talked about turkeys and you you started Her Heritage Foods in 2001 and you do talk about turkey a lot in this book. Um, is turkey like the gateway meat? For me, yes. And it led to pork and uh, methamphetamines and all that. No, but it did. It was a gateway drug. Well, the reason it was a gateway animal is because, as you know from every meat has its season chapter, turkeys, who are allowed to have sex and mate naturally, they have sex in the winter, they're born in the spring, and they're ready for slaughter in, December, in November. That's why we have the holiday then. So it was a perfect animal to rally around because it only came out once a year. Uh, or is only processed once a year, and um, it, everybody eats it across all types of religions and cultures. So, and not to give uh, you know to shine the light on some other the animals, you mention mention um, Temple Grandin a couple different times in the book. Were the animal dialogue chapters kind of inspired by her in any way? Um, yes, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a form of autism that I have. I mean, Temple is famous for having autism, and that's how she's able to get in the heads of the animals. I think I just might be a little... Crazy. Crazy, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, just a little crazy. But I felt that, you know, somebody needed to write from their perspective just once. And uh, most, uh, I guess, people who write books don't think to do that unless they're writing a children's book. But we put a fairy tale in here, and we did three uh, animals. Uh, the cow... The goat. The goat, who was an obnoxious goat and dropped the F-bomb a few times, but uh, totally unacceptable. But that's goats. That's probably why it's, it's a puritanical society. That's why we don't need a lot of goat here. It drops too many F-bombs. But, um, you know, and then the pig. And it was just interesting for them to talk about uh, the violations of big corporate agriculture and what it's done to their species. Mike, you have something to say about these? 
Um, well, it was interesting not only writing from the point of view of a pig, but I enjoyed. I, I was the narrator of the audio book, and uh, the the cow is very well behaved. How did he talk? The, the goat ended up sounding a little bit like Gilbert Gottfried. Can you give us a little? Uh, yeah, give well, us the cow. Well, the cow was a ruminant, you know. And uh, so he was like was on the cover of a Pink Floyd record, <laughs> as was the pig, I suppose. And pig, how does he sound? You know, the pig was the hardest one to get my mind into. Oddly enough, must must be my Jewish upbringing. How did you get into character for that? <laughs> uh, it wasn't well, a stretch. <laughs> the, I, just, I I employed the Stanislavski method. You know, I, I, I roll in the muck and mire mm. to be the pig, and I went out and grazed a little bit to be the cow. So how did the goat sound? Like Gilbert Gottfried. Don't fuck with me. <laughs> oh, brother. Um, so the whole book um, seems to be as much about animal rights as it is about eating meat. So mm-hmm. if you put animal rights first, if you consider that kind of the baseline, does everything fall into place after that? You, the food tastes better. It's healthier. Uh, you have real farmers on a practical scale. Well, if you, this book is called The Carnivore's mm-hmm. Manifesto, but it basically makes the point that no one should eat fast food. While we're very careful to say that that's an unrealistic goal and that everyone's going to eat processed food, we do say that basically the goal should be to not eat animals that have been dosed with antibiotics or chemicals or put hormones in. So if you actually think about it that way, then the Carnivore's Manifesto, this book, is probably the greatest rallying cry for vegetarianism ever written because it basically is really poking a hole in 99.9% of the meat that's eaten in this country. But um, yes, I think if uh, the animals are treated well, unless the chef is a terrible chef, I mean, that is the full ethical thing, although workers could still be mistreated. Yes, it's a funny thing. If that one thing is done, chances are everything else would be infinitely better, if not completely better, you know? Do you want to talk a little bit about that counterintuitive, like middle ground between uh, meat eaters and vegetarians, and how it's there's really more a lot more in common than meets the eye, I guess. Yes, I mean we're all into the humane treatment of animals. They went about fighting that battle by trying to convince people to eat meat, to not eat meat. But here we live, uh, we eat about 11 billion livestock, I think, a year in in America. So we eat meat. So better to fight for the humane treatment of animals than uh, against eating, uh, not eating meat. I think too often uh, groups like PETA and and um, uh, some animal rights groups and vegetarians they get very comfortable and happy with very small successes, like shutting down a foie gras farm mm-hmm. in in Northern California, Sonoma Valley foie gras. But what's much more important is you know putting cameras in slaughterhouses or getting Purdue to enlarge the cage size of laying chickens. Uh, you know, that those are big victories, but that, those, I, you know, I don't hear. I hear about paint being dumped on some socialite for her fur coat, but I don't see the board of directors at Purdue, you know, being told, uh, you know, I don't know, humiliated or called out somehow. So, um, and but definitely... I think we're united. Then their hearts are always in the right place. It's just the way they went about it didn't seem to change that many minds or really better the destiny of these 11 billion livestock. And you guys call all that out in the book. And um, you definitely talk about these small victories. So I want to read a little bit from Chapter 3. 
to hell with local, eat the best. Um, you say slow food was never originally about eating locally. It was about eating the best and preserving and celebrating the unique traits that come to food from a specific region and its producers. Mm-hmm. And you go on in the chapter to say, be aware that you could be denying yourself pleasure in the misguided pursuit of politically correct gastronomy. Correct. I want to talk about eco-gastronomy and tetoir in a little bit, but my real question about this, these statements is, is this kind of where some of these locavore or movements kind of got it wrong or could have done better? No, I mean, misguided. I think uh, it's, uh, it's a great cause. I mean, and many things do benefit by traveling less. So, I mean, it's a safe bet to say, you know, many items would taste better completely locally. But Carlo Petrini was always a big advocate for... Um, gastronomy being treated like a soft science, like anthropology or sociology or psychology, gastronomy. And there are truths in gastronomy, uh, you know, uh, what uh, things taste like, vocabulary that exists to describe meats or wines or cheeses. You know, they're different words. There is just the biology of the tongue is part of gastronomy and where the taste buds lie and all that. Health. You know, certain foods might be good, but then they mess up the microbia in your gut. You know, there are all these things. Gastronomy is a whole world. And uh, local is just a distance. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think that the local movement possibly has gotten too overly supportive of whatever is happening. And not necessarily, you know, informed enough, uh, you know, maybe having tasted enough or having enough experiences to judge something as good. I think they think things are good intentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they, they, they say this is the best wine and it's from Nebraska and look how delicious it is. And really those people are years away or maybe shouldn't even be doing wine in the first place. Maybe it's not climactically adapted to do grapes in that zone. But either way, I mean, I think it should always be the goal to encourage small farmers to do things that they're good at and that the climate is adapted for. So, I mean, local should always be supported, but not unconditionally. I mean, if it's a shitty cheese, you're doing a disservice to everybody by saying, this is great. (laughs) It's just not. They should be told, they should be helped. And that is tough. I mean, because not everyone feels comfortable being like, I don't like this food. And yet on Yelp, when it's anonymous, they'll go crazy. They'll say this was terrible and blah, blah, blah. But yeah. Okay, I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, you talk about the $140 turkey and mm-hmm. you talk and you say um, that we need to kind of break down this sham that, you know, food's too expensive or that low, you know, low income can't afford it. But I'm going to need you to clarify because in theory, I agree with you. But in practice, I, I don't see how a $140 turkey is available to everyone. Right. Well, first of all, we're just talking about meat. Mm-hmm. So just with meat, uh, what ends up happening is that, right, maybe people need to eat less meat because $140 turkey is not affordable to everybody. But to be for a poor person to be told that it's okay to eat a 99 cent a pound turkey when that turkey suffered because of its bad genetics was confined in a plant and never saw the light of day where its waste was dumped into a river and corroded the river and killed other species and got people in the area sick when that poor person eats that turkey he is complicit in a crime and doing damage to his body 
his or her body. That turkey is unhealthy. And, and, and they, they can, again, we're very careful in this book to say it's not a steadfast rule. You know, it's just about the slow turning of the wheel. But essentially, when the 140 turkey dollar is argued against and the 99 cent turkey is promoted, people are kind of having a double standard. Mm-hmm. They're saying because you're poor, you either can't understand that this is a better turkey or you can't afford it anyway, so eat the unhealthy one. That's classist and bordering on racist, I think, mm-hmm. to, to make an argument, that to make a different argument to a poor person than you would to, a, to a, a university student. You don't do that. You give everybody the same information. And if the result is that you eat less meat, so be it. But you can't tell them to eat more shitty meat that's unhealthy for them. That's a big reason why there's an obesity epidemic and all that, because, you know, we end up defending the robber barons, the McDonald's's, the Goldman Sachs of the world that manipulate food prices. We are defending them by promoting unhealthy food to poor people. Now, fruits and vegetables, I think that's a different story. I mean, we're just talking about meat here. I mean, our goal is not that food should be more expensive, but unhealthy food should never be eaten. And people should be told that. And then the slow turning of the wheel happens as it does naturally. So keeping on food prices, is there um, a future, say Heritage Foods USA is wildly successful. You grow by 200%, 300%. We would be bigger. We would be a global, (laughs) global. Is is it a is it possible to achieve economies of scale where if more people are eating and supporting these farmers, prices could come down? Mm And um, you say several times in the book that you can't eat 100% organic. It's unrealistic, whether you're talking about meat or vegetables, whatever it is. Um, is there a ceiling for or a threshold for the farmers to still operate in the same conditions they're currently operating in and not uh, reduce quality as they grow? Well, I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, we did say in the book, Mike and I wrote that, you can, um, you know, can slow food, slow farming feed the world? And we answered it with yes, mm-hmm. and it has once. You know, it did for a long time. And the current system, there are millions of starving people all over the world. The current system is not feeding everybody. So to be asked, can this feed everybody, um, you know, I don't know. Um, but the current system is also having to ask that, answer that same question. But what I will say is a pasta sauce with a ragu in it costs about $2 a person. Even from heritage, rare breed, red wattle, ground pork, or lamb, or Aaron Fairbanks, the executive director of, uh, of uh, the radio network's goat project, the most expensive goat in America, when cooked in a pasta like they do in Italy, that's a $2 a person thing. Mm-hmm. That's, that's less than any fast food basically for the the same type of uh, you know amount of food so um, I think uh, food can be very inexpensive and we call for the grinding of meat because uh, grinding of meat is a is a very cheap portion cost and um, we, we even said in the book that a three by three foot grill a hamburger grill in a very successful place like in the West Village or something mm-hmm. could go through a cow a day that's about 500 cheeseburgers a day that's 300, 365 grass-fed, even organic cows a year. That's like 10 farms worth. So I do think that the solution can come, and I think this new wave of uh, entrepreneurs like Mark Ladner, who we just talked about his Kickstarter program, making his pasta flyer 
fast food franchise of pasta houses around the eastern seaboard? Mm -hmm. That's an answer. He could be going through tens of thousands of animals that way, and the effect of it would be a slow pushing against the commodity organizations, the Purdue's of the world, the Smithfields. They would notice a little blip, and I think those blips are starting to grow because people basically don't trust those guys' food as much as they used to. Great. We're going to take a real quick break, and when we come back, we'll be talking to Mike a little bit more. Stay tuned. We are back. This is Eat Your Words, and today I'm speaking with Patrick Martins and Mike Edison about their new book, The Carnivore's Manifesto. So guys, you make a lot of cultural observations in this book as well as talking about meat and animal rights, and I just want to explore a couple concepts. What is eco-gastronomy? Eco-gastronomy, well, it's Carlo's word. He says ecologists are an American creation, and they were unbelievably boring, suicidally boring. And he said, hasn't the world suffered enough that we need to listen to some ecologists drone on about the bad things happening in the environment? But then meanwhile, he always used to think this about priests especially. There was the gluttony side. Every time there was a priest in the audience, he'd be like, oh, there's a guy who knows what I'm talking about. Um... But uh, they were gluttons, gluttons, and, and gluttony is bad, being boring ecologist is bad, but eco-gastronomy involves both, and it's understanding good food and appreciating it, but also knowing where it comes from. Want to add anything? <laughs> no? No, I'm good. I'm to. good with that current definition of <laughs> eco-gastronomy. Remember when they used to call it ecology? I remember when I was a young hippie in training, and I had that green flag with the E on it. You're too young, you don't yeah, remember. No. <laughs> but, um, is this when you were being uh, were, uh, from the bomb shelters during <laughs> World War II? You were this is when I was desk. being bar mitzvahed in Matuchin, New Jersey. But um, but no, at the time, uh, we called it ecology. It was a green flag, and Earth Day was first becoming into common awareness. And uh, I mean, my, my personal... Um, you know, mission with this book more is Patrick's really about animal cruelty, and I think more about the environment. I mean, I think anybody who poisons a river should be like locked up forever and ever and ever. I consider that psychotic behavior. So I think we both um, tell him about the line you wrote about <laughs> me taking a dump in your living room. <laughs> well, you know, it's not that much different than poisoning a river, is what I'm saying. You know, if you really want to leave a toxic dump, uh, my living room or you know, a place where people you know want to draw water from, you're poisoning water, you're poisoning the earth. I just think that's the kind of behavior that deserves to be punished severely. He basically compared Smithfield yes. and Purdue to someone like me or Mike taking a dump in your living room where your kid plays the Xbox. It's, a, it's a level cool. of disrespect it's, that just sport, like it's, you it's, said, it's, borderlines on it's, criminal. It's spoiling your nest. It makes no sense. If anybody else did it, you'd end up in like one floor of the cuckoo nest. And they do not hold uh, animal concentrated animal feeding operations to the same standards as they do cities, although oftentimes all those animals, like in North Carolina, where there are 10 million pigs being raised, that will have the same toxic effect on the environment, but you don't have to process it. 
somehow farms have gotten, they've lobbied so hard, and these people, House of Representatives and Senators, who are supposed to be watching out for us, are literally doing favors for these guys and changing laws for them. It really just is amazing. Um, I mean, the, the people that we elect are supposed to represent the people for whom elected them. But that's, that's obviously not the case. They, they, they run office for the few big businesses in their state to the point where I read a New York Times article. They're not teaching about global warming in a Wyoming school because a senator with the coal mine. It's just to say the House and the Senate are they're not doing a great job for us when things like that happen. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But um, we do not mention that in the book, really. <laughs> Fair we enough. don't talk about senators or House of Representatives. You don't get too but, political in that sense. That's for sure. Because we don't want to get statistical mm-hmm. and yep. involved in laws and quoting a legal paper. This is about yep. truth and justice. And I think uh, readers and listeners should know that because I was expecting like statistics about the meat industry and and you you definitely call very specific. people people out but it's not it's not like that uh, it's not like these uh, journal kind of academic because like, it's truth you don't yeah. need to put a number on a truth if they if, if uh, the Purdue people are scumbags for what they do to their chickens then they're scumbags and scum does not need a number to it but but more earthy their chicken tastes bad I mean, I wouldn't yeah. eat anything that said Purdue or Cargill or Tyson on it because it tastes like shit. I don't eat at McDonald's because politically I find it repugnant, but because the food is awful. And I'm, frankly, I feel dizzy after I ate McDonald's. Really? Like, it makes me feel like I want to, like, like hurl. Is the only time because, I've ever eaten at McDonald's was when, was when I'm stuck on the highway. I'm really proud. I've never actually been in a McDonald's in New York City because I don't have to. There's so many alternatives everywhere I go. You know, when I'm, like, driving you know, across the Midwest, I'm, you know, I'm out in Ohio and that's all there is. You know, okay. You so, vaguely whatever. remind me of Grimace. That's the big purple one that makes yes. the milkshakes. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you remind me of the hamburger. It, it was because of the bur- it was because of the purple part. That's why. <laughs> There was, a, there was a time when you were making about as much sense as the hamburger, but now you're more like Mary McCheese. Thank you. Well, another, and this is something I'm personally interested in. I've been having this conversation with a lot of different folks. Um, passive consumerism, which is kind of an undercurrent in this book. Um, if you wanted to speak on that a little bit and how overcoming that can it help lead to change. Well, I'll let Mike do that. The Take Back Lunch article and then the commodity yeah. well, quality article. Listen, we can't always buy everything based on price point and convenience. And that's how we got into this whole mess in the first place. I was thinking about that today. Today, uh, when I went out to lunch and I had a vegan lunch at my local uh, Indian place over where I live on Lexington Avenue, um, because that is the be- that was the best alternative, but lunch is such a pain in the ass to get a healthy, nutritious, good lunch that's not filled with you know boar's head turkey or some garbage that I really don't want to eat. And I understand a little boar's head's going to come into my life once in a while. It's hard to avoid. We talk about you know for breakfast in New York we have the classic bacon, egg, and cheese uh, Sammy on a roll, and that Those sandwich animals suffered. that's the product of a of a cruel environment mm-hmm. and it's and it's garbage food but we eat it and enough hot sauce kind of masks the cruelty and you know when we say cruelty <laughs> there's just there's one aspect of the cruelty that this book brings up that other books do not and it is the survival of the fattest and how you know these corporations bred for genetic deformities and when they would pull, when they would find a deformed animal like for instance a chicken whose uh, breast was so heavy uh, because uh, you know it was just a misfit they would pull it from the flock but mm-hmm. not to remove its bad genetics to artificially inseminate to ai 
the next generation with that. That's wrong. And so these animals suffer. Uh, my friend Frank Reese, the godfather of American poultry, says about a third of all chickens arrive to the slaughterhouse already injured from bad genetics. They grow too fast for their bodies to keep up. Cardiovascular, skeletal, muscle, muscle, all that. And that's a crime. And it's funny that while we're looking, oh, did that animal walk around and get a chance to be creative, which is also very important. Many people are on that bandwagon. The real problem is like a Nazi bio-wrenching. And that's not right. And they, that is where I get them. Because they say, oh, our chickens are very happy. But on that level, no one's been forced to answer. The genetics. The genetics and also the antibiotics. They skirt mm -hmm. that a lot. They say, hey, we have no hormones in our chickens, which is illegal anyway. But Purdue puts antibiotics in. The reason is they would die without it. They wouldn't even make their short, miserable life to the end. That's how sick they are. That's a problem. Dead on arrival to give a shout out to Leah Eden. D-O-A. Because uh, you've been doing a lot of coverage here at Harry's. Hasn't anybody seen the island of Dr. Moreau? Yes. I mean, playing God doesn't work. It never works. You end up with Marlon Brando walking around a movie in a shower curtain. Happens every time. It's the only thing that could fit him. <laughs> um, so let's move on to Tetoir. What is, what is that? Tetoir. Merci pour la demande. Ouh là là. Premièrement, c'est Tetoir. That's different than tetoi, which means be quiet. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Mike. Tetoir is a French word that I made up. Uh, <laughs> that, no, I did. I made it up. Why are you laughing? No, I, I, I feel like Gomez and Morticia. Every time I you speak it. French, uh, my blood just boils. J'ai cette mot, et ça veut dire c'est terroir, c'est le terre. Tetoir, c'est le tête, the head. And the head is uh, where terroir is a word that some people don't know. It's basically the power of the soil to influence an agricultural product. So, for instance, Napa Valley is renowned for its grapes because it has a great terroir for grapes. But many terroirs have good grapes. Uh, the Flint Hills is a terroir where prairie grass grows. It's the earth's natural grass in the absence of agriculture. Um, that terroir is very good. Um, so, you know, each area of the world has, you know, in, in they make great lentils in Puy, France, P-U-Y. It's like an internationally known lentil. Why? Because there's something going on there. Um, you know, champagne is a terroir. It, actually, it's a bad terroir for grapes. That's why they made champagne. But champagne's actually a very good example because... The terroir was not so good, so they had to figure something out. Mm -hmm. And over two, three hundred years, they tried to tame champagne. And, and so bottles would explode, and they didn't taste good. It would spoil. But they used their ingenuity to figure out uh, how to turn something to be better. And so terroir is the brain, the, the, the knowledge of the brain, and it's passed on from one creative person to another. So a chef teaching another chef, that's terroir building. And in the case of Brooklyn, there might be so many writers here mm -hmm. that it's just a locus that is bred in and of itself uh, a tetoir. Uh, New Orleans has a tetoir. Kansas City has a tetoir of stockyards and meat cutters. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the Amish have a tetoir of Yeah, I want to talk about, I mean, you, you cover some of the, the obvious ones, Brooklyn, Portland, but um, let's talk some more about some of the surprising ones, like cocktail culture, Amish country, uh, Kansas City, which you know very well. Well, you want to say, what's your favorite? Well, I was going to say, and the marijuana culture we talk about. Yes, as, yes you as, do. <laughs> as, as well. Um, well, it's important. This, this country, um, I mean, 
I mean, globally, like the cocktail culture, I mean, it extends from one place to another. Tetoir is not, um, it may begin in a locus, but it's not necessarily defined by its locale, like the craft beer movement, mm-hmm. um, which really has, uh, you know, taken over, obviously, and it's changed the face of, of beer drinking. I remember when it was uh, Budweiser and Miller and Coors and maybe an import like St. Paul Girl or Bex and then diet beer, which they called light beer, came up, but now there are like 80 or 90 beers, and a lot of them are brewed locally. What do you mean, eighty or ninety? Hundreds in my every my deli. I'm talking about my local deli. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, the, the local, local deli, deli. In my local bodega. There's where, where I used to be able to get three to six kinds of beer. You know, and fifty percent of them were Anheuser Busch products. Yeah. Now I'm buying stuff from all over the world and lots of stuff that's local and wonderful. And um, terroir with beer, for instance, it doesn't matter where it's made. With rare exception, like certain Belgian beers need to be made in Belgium to have this kind of effervescent quality that they have. But basically, it's a technique, and German style beer beers cooking. can be made. Here in America, better than in Germany. It's a style. It's not mm-hmm. lamb based. So that's tetoir is the appropriate word for that. And I think people are more familiar with beer, but I do want to just talk about the ones I think people would be less familiar with. Kansas so, City, marijuana. Well, marijuana. Kansas City is it, it's a light tetoir, but we wanted to try to be meta and leave it to other people if the word ever catch on to fill in their own tetoir examples. But Kansas City, so you grow up there. There is eighty barbecue restaurants. They're constantly, you know, shutting the streets down every summer for the largest barbecue competition in the world. All the restaurants are serving all these different types of meat. That has an effect, and it brings a certain energy to the city and a certain knowledge about what burnt ends are or using all the parts of the animal and different barbecues. You just grow up hearing about it already when you're two, three years old. You're somehow part of that culture. So the tetoir starts to build across millions of people, and then they become experts. That tetoir builds, and so they become kings of shipping, kings of stockyards, kings of livestock, uh, because generation after generation after generation built on the expertise, whereas in New York City, of course that wouldn't exist for that because we don't ship things. Mm-hmm. We don't have stockyards here. So it's just a light kind of energy, you know, influence, let's say. Do you want to talk about marijuana? <laughs> well, you know, it's just we're, it's, it's, we're at a nexus right now with the marijuana culture that it's becoming legal. Um, obviously, the medical marijuana movement is caught on and for recreational use. But if you just look around you, like the new wave of vaporizers and um Everything that's happening, starting you know in the 1920s in this country when people were singing about it, Louis Armstrong, and all the way up through Willie Nelson and Snoop Dogg, there's a real culture here that's grown into like real innovation. And now there's actually like um, viniculture, like you know the wine culture. There's a vocabulary to describe the indescribable, and it's not about where we grow it because sometimes we grow marijuana inside and sometimes we don't. But um, it's really about you know the differences between the terroir and the tetwar. The tetwar happens outside of the farm. The tetwar happens in the kitchen. And we just mentioned it because Tetwar or is, anywhere something creative is happening. That's right, and it's because it's, it's it can be a movement as well as a locus. It's not just Kansas City. It's the beer movement. It's the uh, nouveau marijuana <laughs> movement, such as it is. Um, and it could be anything. It could be you know there being so many writers in Brooklyn. The Tetwar in New York City is that there's probably more talent here per square foot than any other place in the world. And yet nothing grows here naturally, really, you know, anymore. Mm-hmm. But uh, Tetwar, you know, who makes knishes? You know, uh, how does the salmon guy at the Zabar's fish counter cut it so well and perfectly and get you the most, uh, the perfect cuts? You know, that's tetwar. 
you know, and uh, even in the most mundane thing, there's a tetoir for pacing a restaurant. And certain restaurants do it better, and their staff knows it better. I mean, you know, for tetoir, you know, I don't think they buy sustainably. I know they don't. But Balthazar, Mineta, I mean, Mineta does, but Balthazar, Pastis, these are great restaurants because the tetoir is there. The food is decent, but they're, they're just the best at doing restaurants. Mm-hmm. That's tetoir. The height of their bar, the depth of the chairs. The ambiance they create. The old the experience mirrors. that they provide to their customers. That's tetoir because so, he's good at it. Yeah. He has got a tetoir. Jeez, I mean, he has 10 restaurants, each one cooler than the next. And the food is okay, mm-hmm. but yet it's packed. So when I go home and I'm like all kinds of like stoned and in my house I have like one piece of frozen pizza and a tin of beets and maybe a chocolate bar. And, yet I, can, quiz? and yet I can whip something up really wonderful out of this. <laughs> that would be tetoir. They actually had a marijuana <laughs> chapter in the book that they cut. <laughs> they didn't want it to be there, but it was basically written by Mike about his walk through fairway being stoned and all the excitement of the things. It was actually a little pro Commodity foods like no, Malamars. Actually, and well, like that. Where, where, where it went it's is, a good article. you know, being stoned and going to the supermarket. The idea there is that um, I think the biggest problem facing the food movement, especially if the food movement were localized at my dinner table, is is boredom. It's what am I going to make for dinner? Mm. And just trying to think of new things. So, so as a little adventure, just putting myself right into the heart of the equation here. I got stoned and went to the supermarket. And the idea is, how many colors can I paint with? What what's available to me? So I don't. So I can stock my pantry and I'm not stuck with a tin of beets and a, and a chocolate bar in my house. So when I want to make dinner, I have all these things, you know, to, to paint with and to create and not be bored and to be creative. And when I went to the supermarket, I mean, aside from buying, you know, 25 kinds of, of beer, um, I stuck to buying or, organic meat and all these wonderful things. I mean, Fairway's great. The uh, the produce is great. The meat's great. The, the cheese, bread. The, the bread. Che- the cheese, the bread. Oh, my God. The bagels at Fairway. I, I, I don't know, know what the hell's going on over there, but they're making some fine bagels. Well, I think, like, for Tetwar, it's just, like, bringing your awareness to valuing the things that are around you that make your community what it is. Um, and then as far as just that creative element is in, like, taking that Tetwar and using it and adapting it and making it your own and kind of... Uh, building it. We live in a it. world of possibilities and that's also what the Carnivore's Manifesto is about to me. I mean, the thing about this is, yes, Patrick's message is very serious about sustainable, cruelty-free, humane, cleanly sourced food, but it's also, if you follow these rules aside from um, any you know liberal agenda that we may have, uh, your life will be better. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you're, you will eat better and eating is pleasurable. E- eating is not only gastronomy. Gastronomy is hedonism to some degree and it's acceptable and you should enjoy it. It's not just putting food in your face so you can you know get to the next uh, truck stop. It's really about our culture. It's about who we are. And it's very, very intimate. I mean, you put it in your mouth. It does not get any more intimate than that. So let's look ahead. Um, I think that... I- I think the epilogue, uh, the year 2022. No, uh, that's chapter 50. Oh, oh. (laughs) In the year 2222. Is that an epilogue? How did you guys uh, come up? Why did you pick this year? How did you come up with these kind of uh, uh, goals, dreams, wishes, hopes? (laughs) It's all about song books, kid. Now, think about all the copies we're going to sell 25 generations from now. Well, um, this is um, actually a prediction. After a massive federal bailout fails to save it, McDonald's joins the internal combustion engine on the scrap heap of history. Yeah, file that under the wishful thinking department. With lower lower Manhattan now below sea level, Poughkeepsie (laughs) becomes the new restaurant capital of America. I think it's one of the first ones that, uh, where is it here? Oh, yeah, my friend particularly loved this one. Food culture has become an important part of... 
An important part of the curriculum in American schools is reading and writing and arithmetic. And a high school cafeteria in the Bronx is the first to be awarded a Michelin star. It's a controversial one, but we kept <laughs> that out. I mean, there were a lot of people that were against it. Well, so. when you talk about things like uh, elitism and racism, I think a lot of people identified with that one particularly. Food should be taught in school. I mean, we poison our kids. I mean, and not, it's not just um, people who are uh, un- underprivileged. I mean, I looking you know look into a rich person's pantry, you know. Some of my friends who are more affluent and should be educated know better. And all I see is processed yeah. garbage. I see fruit roll-ups to feed their kids and boxes of sugar bomb cereal. Well, because convenience, what do you say? Convenience is uh, the, the destroyer? Oh, that was a quote. There's actually a fun a quote, quote at the top of each chapter. Um, but uh, this is why we wrote the future one, the 38th edition. This is the year 2222 <laughs> of the CM, Carnivore's Manifesto, was released by Little Brown, the same publisher. We've stayed with them the whole now, hopefully time. Hashtag, hopefully, I shall still be in business by then. Ma- well, they did the Farmer's <laughs> Almanac in 1820. So Martins and Edison, its original authors, are long dead and forgotten, which reminds us we all end up as dirt. So please, eat well. Have fun and leave the place better than you found it. I hope Martins and Edison last as long as Rollins and Martin. Rollins and Martin. Rollins and Martin laughing? See, no one even remembers that. See, God, we're, doomed. Lasted we're doomed. That long. You know, well, we're doomed. We're doomed. Sock it to me, For as long as they are. I've never heard of them. <laughs> I think on that quote, we are just about out of time. Guys, thank you so much for coming in to Thanks, us. join us today. Uh, if you want to learn more about animal rights, the meat industry, uh, what's going to happen in 2022-22, pick up the Carnivores Manifesto. It was released on June 10th. That's all for Eat Your Words today. See you next year at Monday at 1 p.m. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. That you, yeah, you made me feel so good inside.